This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Hi, and welcome to ContraCast. My name is Catboyd, and I am joined with my lovely co-host, David Jameson, and we are back on our billship. How's it going? Long time no see. Is it, well, is, it really, is it really three months since the last one? I saw you tweet that. Uh, I think it's about three months. I think the last one I did, the baby was three years, three years, three months old. Um, and now she's six months old. So, I mean, obviously I date everything in baby now. Mm, yeah. Um, yes, the, the the baby sort of egg timer. Um, she's a wee unit now. Aye, aye, she's solid. She's solid. She's great. Uh, <laughs> um so in those three months i mean nothing really quite happened. quite a lot of shit has happened again right yeah. because we're now living in this we're living in a lifetime of politics mm. like do you know what i mean like this whole like history is back yada yada right but it's actually just really stupid politics all the time now mm. like the next current thing like that's, I mean, that's what keeps me going on a day to day basis. Is like, what is the next stupid thing going to be? Yeah, I mean, I, I with some trepidation, I'm anticipating the collision of the current thing, Nicholas Sturgeon's resignation, into next week, which is of course the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Oh, I mean, there's going to be an almighty collision of things, of stupid things, of like um, the current thing and the most idiotic war do you know mm. what i mean like just and the the left's complete failure to organize a proper position against it to argue against it effectively um complete capitulation by major parts of the left <clears throat> to the extent that you know the the right in america are leading the anti-war coalition um, mm. and coalition building um uh against against the war in ukraine um yeah with with Sturgeon's resignation which is the current thing and the the most idiotic thing will collide into a, I don't know just a sort of like firework display of idiocy we're also only just out of um the kind of the pile up around the GRR oh I mean so yeah I mean the things the things are coming uh you know fast I mean, I just want like someone to stop the stupid things. Like, I need a break from the stupid things. That's why there hasn't been a countercast. Because I'm like, I literally, like, you know, people have kids and then they get like into politics because they're like, oh, I need to build a better world for my my child. I'm like, I need to keep my child away from the things, all the things. <laughs> like, no, no news. Like, it's going to be like my house is basically like goodbye Lenin. Yeah. Um, except rather than it being like the Soviet Union, it's just like my crazy fantasy land. Yeah, no, you you should you should raise. Oh, you've got the crucifix there. You should raise your child in a kind of trad bubble, so that they think it's permanently about like. Oh God, I was about to say about nineteen forty, but then do you know the liberals think they permanently live, live in nineteen forty? They're obsessed with the idea. They're constantly refighting the Second World War. So, you know, but just a kind of like an idyllic, fake, you know, fake kind of false time, you know, like, like a sort of like Stepford Wives, but, but it kind of, yeah, it kind of harks well, back what? to the pre-modern period. That would be a gift. And mm. I'll tell you why. Because it would give my child something to rebel against. That's true. Right? So that's the problem is like, everything is so bloody permissive, right? There's no taboos left to be broken. Right. I mean, I think that beginning of the end was really when Owen Jones wrote that article about wanking at work about 10 years ago. And since then, there's just been this like domino of like, I don't know, like all the stuff around like kink and like people talk. Oh, oh God. I mean, even speaking about it re- re- revolts me. Um, I just think people should keep private things private. Just keep private things private. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've gotten to the point where I agree, I believe in the separation of the public and private sphere. I think that the the feminist critique of the division of the world into public and private spheres, the problem is it falls down if you try and 
um, if you try and if you try and meld these two things together, it's like everything the left does, right? Its next project for cultural revolution is always either absorbed or preempted by capitalism. It creates your fantasy. So, for example, um, you know, sec the sexual revolution, right? It creates your society of permissive sexual relationships, you know, sex before, during, and after marriage, as many partners as you want, you know, the, the idea that um, sexual relations in themselves are a form of liberation. At one point, this was the big idea of a part of the kind of psychoanalytic tradition, yeah. uh, Willem Reich and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then, of course, capitalism introduces it. And what a surprise, it turns out to be extremely alienated and alienating. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, I think that this is most obvious with something like sex work or prostitution. Um, that this has now been seen as like a, like a viable career choice for young women. Um, like, and it's promoted not just as a viable career choice, but as a liberated one. Mm. And that's what really fucks me off about it, because it's not, right? Mm. <laughs> I don't. I'll get pelters for saying that. I don't. I have actually like beyond giving a shit about it. To be honest, like I'm very like in favor of like sex workers joining unions and all that stuff. But like, don't pretend to me that that sex work is somehow like a liberated idea for women, men, whoever. Right? It doesn't really matter who it's for. It's not, and it's not the same as working at a dead end office job either. It's not the same thing. No. Um. Is deeply alienating and very like psychologically damaging. Um, no, I mean that's the thing, isn't it? People will say because th there is a there is a lobby of people who will say, "Yeah, we know it's alienating. It's labour. Labour's alienating." Yeah, but, but it's yeah, not the same. This is the, but that's right? like the Sylvia Federici position. Mm. So, like, I went to a lecture um, by her maybe about I think it was about twenty eighteen or something, and she was asked about um, her position on sex work. And she was basically like, you know, well, is it any worse than like selling your brain in a dead end job? And like, yeah, honest, there's part of me, I would rather just be honest on this pod, right? Because that's what the point of it is. There's part of me that doesn't want to talk about this because I know I'll get flack for it, right? Um, there's part of me that wants to be like, yeah, Sylvia Federici's position is kind of right um, because it's the easiest path to take because it's the kind of like the hippest, trendiest, it's what like young people on the left, generally speaking, is the hegemonic one is the sex work is legitimate liberated viable work right in my heart of hearts and with my intellectual brain fully engaged that it, it doesn't compute it's not the same thing um it's it's it's, it's abuse um do you know what i mean it's it's not a legitimate form of work at all it happens um yeah, sex workers should be like unionized. I'm all for like protection and um, for sex workers to be part of the conversation. I don't even care about the term sex work. I'm not getting into another yet another debate about language. But deep down I know that I'm I can't stand by and kind of be like, Yeah, yeah, cool. Like that's absolutely fine for young girls to aspire to be on OnlyFans and call it liberation it's it doesn't make sense the other thing that like i was getting at with this idea of like having something to rebel against is to do with like patriarchy so i've seen it like quite a few times recently and in the current like um like some of the social circles that i like run in people you know talk about like the patriarchy and smashing the patriarchy and increasingly i'm a little bit of the view that it's like well let's be honest the patriarchy is quite fucked and has been for a very long time i mean name any major institution major patriarchal institution that hasn't been absolutely rocked by crisis like from the state, uh, like right across the world, like but particularly the West, like trust in the state, and um, the church, and uh, the family, major global institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, the World Health Organization, like all of these major institutions, have all been like rocked by major crises around like governance, like or the police is another. Do you know what I mean? Like all of these 
patriarchal institutions are in crisis the one that's most obvious to me is the, the family is in crisis but it's still held up as some sort of like that's where the battleground is for a lot of feminists but do you know, i absolutely reject that do you know how do you know how people would respond to that though they would say i mean you're already saying patriarchy is broken because it's institutions uh, don't represent the kind of hegemonic ideological power in society they once did. But the way so much thought on the radical left, or the putatively radical left, goes now is all of these things, patriarchy, capitalism, much else besides, they're just in the ether. They're not attached to institutions. They're, they're like a world spirit, right? Vibes. So, yeah, it's so, the politics of vibes. Yeah, it's vibes. It's it's like it's this stuff is like magic. It's in the air. So, and that's how it's like. That's that's why there's this kind of obsession with the idea that it goes on all the way from a micro to a macro level, right? So you know, um, so there was this completely moronic uh, controversy. One of these social media confections about men staring at women in the gym, right? So it goes all the way from a man looking at a woman in the gym to the fact that most CEOs are men or maybe not so much these days because quite a lot of feminists like war now but there once would have been a critique that um, uh, you know men dominate things like the arms industry and militarism and, and so on that to people on the left is a very seductive idea this idea of our real enemies are sort of like a spiritual force right um, it's like a new idealism uh, on a certain level and it's superficially, because it's abstract, people think it's intellectual. They think it's smart. But really, it's a defense mechanism. It's because if you try and pin people down to material facts, the material relations of society and the material institutions of society could disprove their argument. Or at the very least, it would, you know, if, if you were to take society from the profumal affair to today, just take British society from then to now, you would you could measure the decline of what people are calling patriarchy and they mm. don't want you to measure it right yeah. because that disrupts a certain uh, that disrupts the the left's ability to to keep to 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 keep its analysis of society in a kind of stasis like it's it's unchanging right um loads of people think that you can take uh insights from the Combahee River Collective, right, from the early 1970s, and apply them in 2023, despite yeah. the fact that in Scotland, between those two periods, for, you know, major institutions like, for example, the church have disappeared, hmm. right? Uh, and you, and, and, uh, but it, once you start measuring real institutions and real social life, the idea that there is an all-pervasive um, spirit of patriarchy surrounding us comes into question and that yeah. is a question but this is a very similar problem when it comes to discussions of race as well mm. like the idea that you can export the american like kind of afro pessimism of black lives matter to a place like scotland where yes there is racism but our society is fundamentally built on a different type of racism there's different mm. component parts but people just, you know, it's this kind of like politics of vibe that that's the current thing that's happening. So that's the current thing we're talking about. Um, this yeah. very day, this very day, someone said to me, um, I sort of, uh, you know, I saw this stuff about um, Kate Forbes, um, who is one of the, you know, putative challengers to be the next first minister. Uh, hey, she- first predicted on this podcast, I would say. Oh, that's true. Years ago. Elect uh, the elect. Elect the elect. I already came up with the slogan uh, for the Calvinist campaign. Um, but uh, I, I read an article in The Guardian about, oh, <sighs> can, can she sneak her socially conservative attitudes into high office and so on? And uh, someone, and I, I just said that this tweet where I said, um, like, she doesn't want to turn Scotland into Gilead. Right. She is a member, she's a careerist in a liberal political party. She keeps her she keeps her religious views relatively low profile, except when she's talking about them in a very kind of personal profile sort of way. She doesn't thrust them into politics. And very few yeah. politicians do anymore. They kind of park they park God at the door and then they go into the into the chamber, right? But as soon as I said this, people were like, um, 
don't you understand that there's a, a conspiracy all the way from the United States to Westminster and now to Holyrood to, to unwind uh, you know, queer people and women's rights and all this kind of stuff. I do not believe in this conspiracy. Like, I, don't I don't think that that exists. I don't think that the human material for a meaningful, either religious or secular conservative movement exists in Scotland. You know, I and I almost, I mean, I did say sort of, uh, you know, um, a, a spectre is haunting Scotland, a spectre of, uh, you know, social conservatism. And a bit like in that opening, you know, section of the Communist Manifesto, you know, Marx starts by saying, there are a lot more people flaking out about communists and communism and claiming who they are and what they want than there are communists, you know, <laughs> and people and, and communists talking about what it is that they actually want. Um, in much the same way, like, there's this permanent animating fear of a, a social conservative monster who doesn't exist. Yeah. Permanent fear. The idea that and this is what I saw people saying is she's gonna overturn equal marriage and abortion rights. Not a chance. Not like, a fucking chance. And else she's yeah. like she's like, gonna be the leader of like a bourgeois, like middle class party in Scotland. I mean, it's not. So, it's, it's so just not not gonna happen. I mean, see if she tried that, she'd be out on her ass faster than Liz Truss was. It's that level of. You know, I mean, just completely breaking the rules of the social order. The the rules of the social order would not permit something like that to happen. Um, And that but that should tell you something about the nature of that social order. And it should tell you that the tools you're using to analyze capitalism. Do you know what I mean? Like there seems to be quite a lot of people who think that like capitalist ideology is like Andrew Tate. As though he weren't wouldn't be regarded by someone. No, Andrew T- Andrew T- is a, is literally a symptom of the crisis in patriarchy. Of course he is. Like uh, actual patriarchs don't fucking look and behave like Andrew Tate. No, he's he's like, he, actual patriarchs don't put pictures of themselves fucking half naked on the internet. Like I'm sorry, yeah. but this guy is just a, like he's just a saddle. Th- this is the thing. He's the cast off. He's. Do you know he's, he's like Greg's man. He's he is uh like a parody. It's like someone's mocking manhood. Yeah, right? it's I like think. someone's mocking the image of manhood that might have been a reality in about nineteen ten. Right? They're saying like, what it? What is it to be a man? It's to be kind of like. But I mean, can you imagine? Yeah, as you're saying, like a real patriarch, right? Like I don't know, a tycoon in the nineteenth century, going around calling women bitches. Stripped to the waist, um, oiled up, bald, oil, oiled up. Like um, I saw the um, the editor of the internet blog Bella Caledonia, and um, do a sort of conspiracy theory post on this, where he he like posted three pictures, and one was like Andrew Tate, one was like of right said Fred, and one was of like Putin shirtless and like with a shaved head, as if this was, like was he claiming. That there's a relationship between the boldness and the shirtlessness. I think you were claiming that there was a relationship between reactionary politics, boldness, and shirtlessness. Okay. Um, well, it's I mean, it's a take. Um, it's a take. I mean, it's not as good as my Ukraine take, which I am absolutely pumped to give you. Right, go on. Are you sure you want to hear this? Because this is the this is the genuinely the maddest fucking chat I've had in ages. Go on. So. I think that people are so like keen on Ukraine, especially the boomers, right? Because they have already spent like five or ten years or whatever being subliminally exposed to Ukrainian propaganda through minions because they're the same color as the Ukrainian flag. And everybody knows that boomers love minions. That, and I think if you... That is certainly <laughs> a baby brain take. So, that's like, I, that, I was genuinely sitting on the couch thinking about minions. So yeah. you're in your mind, they've got, like, I know what you mean, like, it's kind of like um, a boomer will send you, uh, like, memes of, of those minions. Minions. Yeah, and like um, you can imagine, kind of like wine o'clock minions arriving. Yeah, 
Yeah, wine o'clock minions and like, do you know what I mean? Minions doing someone this is my big fear about like becoming a mother was that I would suddenly start sending minions memes. Well, this is uh, this is the thing. I mean, do you do you sometimes receive mean <laughs> minions <laughs> memes alongside like weird shit about Zelensky? Because there's a lot of that as well. There's a lot no. of like, Zelensky thirst. But uh, I'll tell you what, right? See, see on Mum's Net, right? Mm-hmm. Like on Mum's Net, the they all love Zelensky. I mean, they're all like wet for Zelensky. Sorry, that's disgusting. <laughs> they all they all love Zelensky. And they all love minions, right? Mm. So, like, the Venn diagram is a circle. I'm just trying to think about when the minions... Hang on, what were the minions in? Because I, I know... know. I, I think it was some kind of Disney Pixar thing, but what I'm going to suggest, what I'm gonna suggest is if a listener can go back and look up uh, whatever Disney Pixar film that was and see if it came out around about the time of the Maidan uh, movement, right, and that will be definitive proof that the um, the minions were disseminated into Western society, as you say, to to plant the seeds uh, for hysteria over the war among the wine at six pm uh, brigade. Um, so what, and, and I'm going to lay down a challenge as well and say, is that not at least as good as the claim? that boldness and shirtlessness are a masculinist ploy for supporting um, the Russian side in the war. I should say, by the way, that the idea that there is a titanic struggle between masculine and feminine energies in this present war, you might think that sounds like something Jordan Peterson would say, but that's the official position of a campaign called Another Europe is Possible, which you may remember was a kind of leftist front for the People's Vote campaign, they signed a statement that said that the struggle in Ukraine was a struggle for kind of like feminine or like femme liberation against toxic masculinity. Yeah, yeah, I know. As represented by Putin and his bald head and chest. Um, So, I mean, you may think we're, we're sort of talking a load of crap here, but it's at least as intelligent as much that is being said in the public sphere at present. Yeah, I mean, I just like... I just did a quick um I just did a quick Google search of Ukrainian minions, right? Mm. And like there's a story on the internet about how um yeah, the Ukrainians have dressed a bomb up as a minion. Oh my Christ alive. They've they've adopted this as a symbol. I don't know. I mean I I cannot verify that this is from a <clears throat> reliable news source. But exactly, and that's why I share my insane conspiracy theories because the idea that um the Ukrainian resistance is somehow like a blow to Putin's deadly like patriarchal values is fucking stupid. It's mad. the The war in in Ukraine is as sad and tragic a war as has ever taken place. Uh, yeah. People trying yeah. to project various fantasies onto it of you know, like this is going to be some kind of breakthrough for left-wing politics, or it'll be good for the world if, like, Russia collapses or something. It's just completely mental. This is, this is very much, I mean, it's, you know, it's a very strange thing that All Quiet in the Western Front is, you know, being kind of lauded at the Oscars. And the compartmentalization of people's minds to, on the one hand, be like, God, isn't war hell? You know what I mean? That film that really delivers an emotional punch and says wasting young men's lives in wars for kind of European hegemony and land and geostrategy, it's outrageous. But in the very next sentence, you know, the the present analogous war, and it is quite analogous in many ways to the First World War, except for scale right now, at least. Who knows? Uh, We'll see. In the very next breath, it's Oh, no, but the version of that that's going on right now really is noble. Like, it really is glorious. Nadia Whitman MP, says it's glorious. She uses that phrase. She she says, glory to Ukraine. What glory? (laughs) I mean, it's disgusting. How can anyone call hundreds of thousands of people being churned into mud, which is what's going on in eastern Ukraine right now, glorious? It's just... It's It's sick. And it just shows you that people can absorb those kind of, like, those polite, 
kind of official mainstream anti-war opinions, you can absorb them at such a superficial level, such a superficial level that you can hold them. That there are people, you know, who wouldn't, who would, you know, the next time there's Poppy Day, they'll be like, oh, Poppy Day, horrible celebrating war, and they'll be sharing on social media all the kind of um, World War One poems and stuff like that. And these same people will support the present war. Yeah. I should say, but I, I like it that we've already, it shows you what happens if there's three months without a contacast. We have just exploded <laughs> a spatter of, of d- d- demented contacast patter on here. We've already moved through the sexual revolution, minions, war, <laughs> uh, Kate Forbes, Calvinism. It's like a greatest hits. It's kind of like when old bands tour and and they and they do medleys of their songs. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a mega mix. This is a mega mix. A podcast mega mix. Like the crowd should be loving this. Uh, oh, hey, this this reminds me, right? So I um I went to an event between the last podcast and this one. Um, it was a spoken word event. I mean, not really my not my bag, but I went with a very dear friend of mine. Um, and it was uh, at King Tut's and I was standing outside um, chatting to a Scottish celebrity, Darren McGarvey. Mm. And we're standing outside chatting and uh, a guy came up to me and was like, oh my God, I love your podcast. Can you sign my tits? Right, okay. His name, I think, was Auden. And then he said, no, my real name's Angus, but I call myself Oren. I don't really know. I was... Sounds like one of our listeners. <laughs> um, unhinged yet wholesome. Mm. That's a listening base. Um, yeah, so I was like, oh, on the next pod, I definitely will give him a shout out. And then he said, he was like, the thing I love about your pod is that it's so shambolic. It's mm. like, it takes, it takes about... 50 minutes to get to the actual the actual bit did you sign his teat no i didn't i oh. didn't i i assumed he was speaking sort of like poetically okay i i think that he meant like oh gosh i want you to sign my tits yeah okay okay um, like i'm a do you know what i mean i didn't then like fucking whip out a barrel yeah yeah and write and write boydy on his chest <laughs> <laughs> i would love to do that um okay so uh oran also known as angus uh thanks for listening and thanks for uh noting the the shambles yeah um, i mean let's hang on the meat and potatoes of this episode though must be Sturgo has gone yeah did you uh were you shocked surprised no i was do you know this is the second time this in my life this has happened that um I've been napping whilst like the the big thing has happened, right? So the first time this happened was on my way back from Cuba um at the EU referendum and James Foley woke me up like shaking me awake because I was um a pumped full of Valium was shaking me awake going, Fucking Brexit's happened, Brexit's happened, right? <laughs> Delighted. Same thing happened apart from like, you know. I'm just having a nap on the sofa with the baby, not pumped full of Valium. And James Foley is shaking me awake going, Sturgeon's resigned! Sturgeon's resigned! Like, it really gave me flashbacks to that moment. Um, and frankly, I have never seen my husband happier for a long time. Um, uh-huh. Really delighting in the moment. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, wasn't, I'm annoyed. I wasn't surprised. I was just sort of like, it felt a bit... I mean, we've been we've said that she's gonna go for a long time. Like, I just, I honestly think that she's using this as a as a bit of an opportunity to construct a particular. I think she knows that she had to go. I reckon it's probably something to do with the money. I think there are there are big questions being asked about the SNP finances, the money that was loaned from Peter Murrell. Like, there's an ongoing police investigation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, I think that might get a bit hot maybe not who knows um but also to be honest with you see going round about this time 
when all of the fallout of the GRR is happening. What that allows you to do is it allows her supporters to run a Nicola was too good for Scotland, you see. Mm-hmm. I mean, this country's still too backwards. I mean, we're still, it's still trapped by the reactionary like views of um conservatism, blah, blah, blah. It allows your supporters to run that story. You don't have to say that. And let's be honest, we've already seen on social media lots of people giving out hot takes that the reason she's resigning is over like you know how the press have harassed her um over the grr and all that stuff um yeah and she's a woman and that somehow she's a victim i mean i fucking hate thatcher but at least she just got on with being an evil wee bastard do you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. I I mean I um I'm almost the kind of annoyed I predicted because but you know because then everyone says they predicted it and and anyone and and if you say it you sound like you predicted it but quite unusually we did uh you know for commentators in Scotland we did predict it though I wasn't expecting it to come quite when it did but one thing I had been thinking and one thing I actually wrote in an article for Conta was the longer she leaves this the less well she can go. And honestly, I think if she'd left this a month or two months, it would look much worse. So she did the smart thing. I mean, she's nothing if not canny with this kind of stuff. I'll tell you something else as well. She told no one. Yeah. Um, Angus Robertson uh, was out of the country. He was on holiday in Antigua, right? And it just... What yeah, actually, I, that's I, not good. If he had heard a, a sniff of a rumour around this, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have gone, right? But... That shows you, by the way, how Sturgeon ran her internal operation. It tells you so much. Remember, her top ministers had no idea about the de facto ref policy, not before she announced it to the world, even after she announced it to the world. Some of her top ministers were caught in radio interviews and basically had it explained to them by the journalists, right? Sturgeon has been running the SNP this way. She never tells her team what's going on. Because that way she can control the news cycle entirely herself. Tells you a lot about um, about politics. I mean, all the crap people are talking about, or how compassionate she is, and all this kind of stuff, right? She's a player through and through and through. Yeah, yeah. this is this is what fucks me off, right? I actually think that this is. I think that this is a type of flip side of sexism, right? All this, like, you know, compassionate politician. No, Nicola Sturgeon is calculating. She is calculating. She is controlling. As you said, she dominated the news cycles, like, controlled everything incredibly tightly. Like, at least if you're going to, like, do a gush, do it on that. Do it on the fact that her and her husband... <laughs> ran the dominant party <laughs> of the country do you know what i mean yeah. not that she was like also you know down earth and like compassionate and always had like you know real care and tenderness like i would fucking hate for people to talk about me like that absolutely and i'll tell you i'm that. dead i want people to be like cat was mean but very 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 good at it well this is the thing right i think there's a little bit of this just a little bit because most of it's just people you know, for want of a better phrase, virtue signaling or, you know, signaling to their, their, their kind of prevent professional credentials as one of the insiders and so on, right? But I think there is a little bit of this, which is it's self-serving uh, on a kind of ego level, because if you say about Nicholas Sturgeon, some of the pants articles out there are absolutely oh, embarrassing, right? Oh, honestly, it, I read one in the Herald today that made me want to blow my brains oh. out. It's people saying things like she might not have been that radical, but she did X, Y, and Z quite well, and so on. It's like, you know what I mean? She may not have lived up, you know, it's more like she may not have lived up to her radical dreams. She doesn't have any fucking radical dreams. Shut the fuck up. This idea that she's a lefty who fell short is ridiculous. Right? It's, it's honestly, I mean, I, I keep going back to this in my head about, you know, when like Thatcher is quoted as saying like her greatest legacy is Tony Blair. Aye, that's a top. That's a I, top. I, I, I think of like Sturgeon's greatest legacy is the fact that Anna Sarwar is now playing things can only get fucking better outside the Glasgow City Chambers. Yeah. 
Like yeah. Scotland has been now we are now trapped in stasis. Like that Sturgeon, is her legacy. Sturgeon has reintroduced neoliberalism into public life in Scotland. I mean, she's given it a kind of second birth. But my point is this. See when I would I would it's much truer to say the following, right? I'll say this for Sturgeon. If I was going to say one thing for Sturgeon, right? She absolutely done us up like a fucking kipper, right? That's the truth, right? And that, by the way, is the non-patronizing thing to say. Yeah, you can't take away, you can't take away from Sturgeon the fact that she fucking done us. And if you're particularly, by the way, if you're in the independence movement, she fucking did you. She, right? you got shafted. You got shafted so hard with a foam finger. With a foam finger, she took the pot of money and she ran, right? But what I'm saying is, be honest, right? Give the devil her due. She absolutely fucked us over. Holy the, man. The independence movement in particular, right? Giving her her due is not saying, have you heard this line? And the only reason it's going around is because she said at her own press conference that her priority was women and children. That is the most, oh, it is craven. How can people say that, man? Uh, I mean, her priority was women and children. Um, yeah, and you know, app, you know, apple pie and mother love. Those were her other fucking. <laughs> her other achievements were like being nice to kittens. I mean, for God's sake, right? No, her achievement was. You drowned the independence movement like a helpless fucking runt. Yes, right. She she picked it up by the hind legs and smacked its fucking brains out on. Left it by the side of a motorway in a bin bag. Covered in piss, right? <laughs> and she could do that because she she had real qualities. What were those qualities? Ruthlessness. Yes. Calculation. Yes. Single-mindedness. Yes. But see, this is, and that's actually, in my opinion, I think that's what it takes to be a politician. I think yeah, that's what absolutely right. Like a political actor. Too many of today's politicians are so thin-skinned. Mm. It's unbelievable and Sturgeon wasn't like that do you know what I mean like when I I mean when I was running for a rise man I was a complete basket case complete mm. basket case so I thought I was like mm, mm. But, I, but I know what you're you remember saying it. you remember it right because like everything that happened with like the campaign I, I took it all really personally when we got criticized because I like I'm not cut out for that type of politics like I'm not evil and ruthless and calculating and all that stuff like I'm a big dumb kitten like that's do you know what I mean like and I like to think about politics and talk about it and do it where I can but um I'm not up for the sharp elbowed climb the climb the greasy ladder like all that stuff do you know what I mean like and I think you have to like be a certain person and that should be respected but today's politicians are so thin-skinned they take loads of stuff personally and at least Sturgeon didn't really appear to do that she didn't. She never. She never took it personally. She knew. She had that mind, right? I mean, I don't want to say. I mean, maybe if sociopaths are on a spectrum, right? Then she had. She had a touch of it. She had a little pinch of it, right? Because she had that instinct, and most people don't have it. I don't have it, right? This thing of just that ruthlessness, that thing where you you feel completely emotionally insulated from your own actions, and some of it is grim, by the way. Like, some of it is vile. I mean, what people euphemistically call her failings, some of them involve large numbers of people dying, right? I know, I know. Now, I, I, I tweeted this because I'm, like, fucking sick of this rewriting of history. Like, I hate when this happens, when a politician or, like, a political leader resigns and then, like, history is very quickly rewritten. You know, it, ha it happened with the Queen as well. I mean, it happened when Thatcher died, like, you know, it'll happen. It's, I think it's one of the lasting successes of the anti-war movement that Blair will, it, it's very difficult to rehabilitate him. Because mm -hmm. no matter what he does, it will always haunt him. And I think that's one of the successes of Stop the War. But under Sturgeon's government, that COVID care home crisis happened. No, absolutely. Nobody and, was held accountable for it, David. And this and is I, how you... I retweeted something that Neil Finley tweeted yonks ago the other day, just to be like, still happened. It still happened. No, no, no amount of talk about women and children 
can make it go away. And as you were saying, you know, I'm I'm not. If if I was responsible for what happened in Scotland's care homes, and I, as soon as I'd found out about it, I would have been at the podium, you know, Nicholas Sturgeon's little press podium at the time, and I would say, I am resigning, and uh, I'm filled with remorse and shame. And then I would have signed myself into some sort of rehab centre and said sort of like, you know what I mean? It, it will be a gain for me at this point if I come out of this situation alive, right? <laughs> That's what would have happened to me if I had presided over just one of the um, complete uh, catastrophes uh, that took place during Nicholas Sturgeon's tenure. Now, maybe I mean, that- this is a woman who led the, the SNP and could not in her time of leadership secure a commitment to another referendum i mean it's baffling that people think she did a good job yeah and it fascinates me that support for her continues to be coded as left wing whereas it really wasn't that long ago that kate forbes delivered a budget that was like slash 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 that was a spending review it's so bizarre being on the left and trying to be meaningfully like a socialist today. And what you see is identical policies emerging from um, the, the supposedly left wing of official politics and the supposedly right wing, which is kind of like, it's not, I mean, do you know what I mean? Like the Tory party is a liberal party, but in any case, from this blob uh, emerges a very similar body of politics. And yes, as you say, coding them radically differently. Mm. People investing so heavily in yeah. that in that coding um the the, the pandemic's perhaps a, the arch example because the record of the pandemic in scotland and england was almost identical yeah. and yet you know there's a real public belief that there was a huge difference between yeah. how those two things were handled it was the same it was exactly it was, it was just exactly yeah. the same so yeah and then the, <laughs> i mean the thing about independence is just uh everything that you could have done to undermine the independence movement in Scotland after 2014 was done, making it utterly implausible that this wasn't a a conscious, calculated, continuous effort. I was always, um, I always thought one day Nicholas Sturgeon will appear at the head of one of those independence marches, right? And even if she had, I would still have said deliberately not doing so for years was a deliberate ploy. Yeah, to, to demobilize the movement, um, to 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 kind of dampen it, to leave it without political leadership, and and to disorientate it, and so on. Um, but one of the things that's happened now that she's left, and the way she has, is it will never happen. So it never happened. She never went on a single pro-independence march after the twenty sixteen her unveiling of Indiref two. From start to finish, that was a money and data mining operation, and an operation to run down any potentially autonomous nodes within the wider social movement, right? To just remind people how utterly cynical this was. The the SNP in 2016, they announced independence referendums on numerous occasions, far too numerous to, to, to number here. But two of the most cynical were immediately after Brexit, when, some, when a campaign was launched called ref.scot, that is referendum, on very close inspection, you could see it was an SNP front, right? Uh, it, raised, uh, it raised tens of thousands of pounds and then was suddenly shut down because the SNP launched their own fundraiser for the 2017 general election. Um, then there was a, a second, or a th- rather, you know, yeah, a second relaunch, a second IndyRef2 in 2019. This one was called Yes, right? And was designed so it looked like a cross-party uh, uh, campaign. I should tell you, by the way, I didn't know this until relatively recently, but if I'm not wrong, that campaign presented itself as the successor to, among other campaigns, the Radical Independence Campaign. Just so you know. So when it's about our section on yes.scot, it claimed to be, or at least came as close to claiming this so that you couldn't, you know, it wasn't actually said so that, you know, no one could kick up a fuss. But it basically had this kind of long preamble about how 
um, this great movement came together in 2014, and now it's Yes.Scott, right? And it's uh, uh, the name Yes.Scott was all in kind of like party colours, red, blue, yellow, or the Lib Dem orange, right? A so yes Alliance sort of vibe. Yes Alliance. So you would look at this and that you would think this is a this is a multi-party, all-party campaign, etc. It raised hundreds of thousands of pounds, mm-hmm. uh, very much of it for people who weren't even in the SNP. Again, you'd have to ru- rummage around in that website to find out um, uh, that it was actually an SNP uh, uh, platform. And the only reason there's anything saying it is SNP is so that you don't donate above a certain level, you know, if you're, if you're outside the UK, because of course it's going to a political party, yeah. so that's illegal, right? Um, if you ever went on this website, it had all these kind of tabs you could click on for like, where's your nearest event? Where's your y- y- nearest yes.scot event? There were never any events. This thing just sat there like a sort of internet born tud, right? Not doing anything except raising money and getting people to send in their email addresses. The money raised from both of these campaigns disappeared. Uh and uh, there's still no accounting of where it is. Hmm. Now, the official line at the moment should be said, the police are currently investigating this situation. The official line at the moment is that this money has been, well, it's never been said out loud, but I don't know where else it could have gone except on routine party activity. Um, but this money will be, uh, it, it, it's in, it's ring-fenced in the minds of accountants, right? Hmm. So it's an IOU. That money is now owed in some future independence referendum. Uh, I asked the SNP president, Mike Russell, about this, right? Uh, This was a couple of years ago, maybe. I said to him, I was in an interview for a different publication. I said to him, um, right, if it is an IOU, then the only way you can recuperate those monies is by holding a fundraiser specifically for the SNP, Right. So the SNP then recoups that £600,000 to its accounts and you tell everyone that it's for the SNP and then you transfer that into the into a non SNP, you know, or, or sorry, into an SNP independence campaign for an independence campaign. Right. So you transfer explicitly SNP raised monies into the, the explicitly independence campaigning pot right for an actual referendum campaign he said yes to that so officially according to the snp president the plan is to lie to people right (laughs) to raise money for the snp for non-independence campaigning activities and then transfer that money so the only way to get out of this now not just according to me but to the snp president is to do more lying is to lie to people and more fundraisers. Um, I have no idea how they're going to get out of that situation because that's nonsense. That's not going to happen. That's ridiculous. So news that Sturgeon is, uh, that the police are uh, investigating this. And also news, of course, emerged last year that party chief executive and Nicholas Sturgeon's husband, uh, Peter Murrell, made a loan of £107,000 to the party, which very much makes it sound like the party's in severe financial difficulties. According to The the, the Sun, uh, there's a possibility police are now investigating that as well. And that came out 48 hours before Sturgeon suddenly yeah. quit. Yeah. Not saying there's a connection between those things. We'll have to wait and see. There are, I mean, it's, it's testimony to how off the rails things went in the last few months yeah but that that is only one of the things that may have prompted this early exit uh, i mean uh, of all the things um i mean i think that the that sturgeon's legacy if you like um and like heart heart failures in office are i think that there is probably going to be quite a significant lag before we really understand what happens mm. between the the kind of the post referendum surge and like support and membership and I'm with Nicola 
and like that, you know, becoming like what the biggest social democratic party in Europe, um, with it like in days, like you know, mem membership like what multiplied by five, six, seven times, like after the referendum loss. And a lot of those voters coming from like the Labour heartlands, like those working class constituencies that voted yes. And um, I mean, places like Lanarkshire, Glasgow, like places like Dundee. Um, and now I suspect that lots of people have left the party, not in a kind of like, I'm writing an angry letter, resigning my party membership over X, Y, or Z. Um, X, Y, or Z being like, you know, the indie ref money or the failures on education or the GRR or whatever like that. I don't think that that's what's happened. I think people have just like let their membership lapse. Mm. Or they've just like cancelled their subs. Um, I, I And what then happens to people who, you know, really like bought into the cult of, of Sturgeon? Because nobody who's going to, you know, come after her is going to like have that same moment. The circumstances are entirely different. The candidates are all entirely different, but all the same. Um, and I just wonder, like, what impact is that actually going to have on politics in Scotland, where you have, you know, a whole generation of people who will always feel betrayed by the Labour Party, and then you have this other group of people. <laughs> who felt that they had agency for the first time in their lives in 2014, joined the SNP because that, like, independence was the thing, and then slowly watched as the party just ignored them too. Yeah. And, and, like, what happens? In, and I think there will be a, I think it'll be a big lag. Like, I think there'll be a lot of time that, that goes by before we actually see the fallout of it. And, but I don't think it'll be very pretty. No, I don't think so. I think, um, so I think there are two broad outcomes from this because I've just seen, perhaps people have seen a poll that shows Scottish Labour winning the next general election in Scotland, right? And not by, a, you know, by seats anyway, not by vote count, but basically winning back all of the Labour heartlands that they lost after 2014. There are people who will look at that and quite foolishly and superficially say, Labour Scotland's back. No, it's not, Right. Instead, what, you, what you're going to have is whack-a-mole. People alternating between parties to whack the other one, right? Which is a symptom of class dealignment. Basically, yeah. after 2014, a block of working class votes shifted dramatically from, from Labour to the SNP, partly in a bid to punish Labour, partly because they thought that they now had a project that could represent their interests. Um, what's going to happen now is that block is going to transfer, at least in part, to Labour just to punish the SNP, but with no hope, no hope that the Labour Party will somehow represent the interests of yeah. working class people. Certainly not beyond kicking out the Tories, which is another part of the impetus for this. There's a mirror situation going on in England. Starmer becoming Prime Minister next year, if that's what happens will not represent a meaningful resurrection of like social democracy in Britain or something. It's just that the Tories are now getting the whack-a-mole treatment, yeah. right? So in 2019, there was a historic class-based shift away from Labour to punish the Labour Party and to secure Brexit, at least in, in for some voters. Um, actually, you know, some of those voters went from Labour to Tory, a lot more just fell away, right? Now, there's going to be a migration back to Labour to punish the Tories. But that does not invest anything in, the, in, in Starmer's project in England. So we're witnessing an acceleration of the class dealignment of politics, the hollowing out of um, public life, and a continuing fall in um, expectations in politics. There are no expectations anymore that any of these politicians will deliver anything good for people. And that's because really no politician has this side of the millennium, right? And perhaps longer. That's a toxic situation. It's very dangerous. And all those people who, who I remember around the time of like Brexit and Trump and stuff, there was this hullabaloo 
on the kind of center left and in sort of the guardian and the new statesman and open democracy and stuff people saying quite rightly well you know don't just shriek about things like trumpism this is what happens when people lose faith in in public life right and then of course as soon as trump's out of office and as soon as boris johnson's gone and so on the old complacency just comes right back in and people are like, oh, isn't Sturgeon wonderful in the pages of these same publications? You are storing up so many problems for the future. Yeah. I wouldn't, I'm not saying this will happen, but I wouldn't be surprised if there is a, a right-wing backlash in Scotland. Yeah, I think it's been ticking for a long time. Uh, we're not immune to, to the moods yeah. and on the continent. And our great problem, and this is kind of why we started doing Connor and stuff is, the left is associated with neoliberalism in Scotland, deeply associated. And there's no way to break that's, that association. That's why you can quite easily talk about being a socialist and loving Nicholas Sturgeon. Yes. And, it, and I would say. Yes, and, and nobody bats, nobody bats an eyelid. Most like, people. Or Greens talk about being socialists, you know, that like, you know, you know, I'm a socialist and a Green. And I'm like, look, look at like this, this stuff that you've back like these cuts to public spending do you know what i mean the cuts to the nhs and they are cuts right and this is the problem is like sometimes like the criticisms have elements of truth and i know how the budget works don't anybody send me fucking tweets saying don't you know how the scottish budget works like do you know what i mean i know how this works but th that the reality is is that certain groups of workers ordinary people pay the price time and time again yeah. um, and when the executioner is different it's it's gone from labor to the smp to the smp and the greens i don't think that people will forget that and there's not a lot of other places for people's energy to go i also think people are really sickened by the culture war like it honestly i just i can't take it anymore like i want twitter to die um, I don't want to like be involved in any culture war politics. I think people are utterly fucking ghoulish mm. um, around like all these issues. I think that people use tragedies to like further their own agendas all the time. I just I think it's all awful. And like we've been on the left. I mean we've been on the left for a long time. We've been dealing with what are essentially culture war issues for about fifteen years, right? Yeah. We started discussing things like gender identity and cis and trans and all that about 15 years ago. I think people don't understand this because it's right. like, yeah. So like basically, and to be honest, it is, I heard someone describing it as like luxury ideology. It is because it comes from a very academic background, you know, very university campus background. Like it is, it is the language of the academy, the way that the, the debate is gone. And what's happened is that that has been propelled into the mainstream. And there's people across Scotland going, hang on, what are you talking about? Mm. And we had 15 years of like discussion and debate about these concepts. Um, and suddenly, you know, people in bits of Scotland that have, you know, never had the, the luxury of like, you know, sitting about talking and thinking about these things are going, wait what's just happened well this is do you know what this the the grr in particular made me think about the kind of political geography of modern democracy is when the democratic system was developing in britain so in the 19th century when you had agitation for reform and so on what it generally looked like was in england for example but this is exactly just as true in scotland like in england for example and there'd be agitation in the north and midlands right and you know in the docks of cities and in the coal fields and in the industrial sectors and in the, in the weaving centers you know that was where a lot of the kind of agitation political agitation was going on and then that would reach such a peak that it would migrate from the north and midlands to london right and suddenly there'd be mobs of tens of thousands of working class people outside the houses of commons and the house of lords right and the politicians would have to and you know they'd present a petition or something it wasn't fully formed class consciousness so people weren't saying we're going to take power or whatever they were just saying we've come to you with our grievances address our grievances that's where the whole tradition of protest politics come from literally protest marches 
came from when um, you know a regional MP would organise a petition and say, follow me to the House of Commons to present the petition to the Commons. And once when they see you walking behind me, they'll say, oh, there's a great strength of feeling behind this. So literally the whole history of protest politics is um, this, it's the, it's the provincial areas petitioning the centre, yeah. petitioning the centre of power, right? Here's my question about the GRR, but I could pick many other forms of legislation um, in recent decades. Did they come from the regions? Did they come from the marginalised and excluded? Or did, this, did the process for this mostly happen in the other direction? Did the centre issue its demands to the periphery? Right? Did the centre change things and then go to the periphery and say, just so you know, we've made some changes? Right? This is what's happening now. And if you're not down with that, then you get left behind. Like that's the story of fucking Brexit. Like that, yeah. that's what that's what happened. Absolutely, absolutely. This is this is this is what politics looks like in the period of you know ruling the void, right? Yeah. That yeah. it's no longer the case that the um, uh, the provincial um, uh, mass of the country geographically, but I'm obviously talking about populations as well, periodically asserts itself over the governing centre, right? Instead, you have a governing centre that operates, that, that apart from anything else, consciously seeks to exclude the periphery and, a fa and occasionally, you know, doles out fait accompli, right? Yeah, that's because, especially, and especially in Scotland, the, the way that that has manifested is because it is a very small managerial class. Absolutely, they absolutely. act like managers. They act like administrators. Like when this the, is what management is doing now, here is the diktat. Like this is this is the way things are done now. When Nicola Sturgeon came up with the GRR and before her Theresa May, right? Theresa May got yeah. done in over it, right? This is not something that came from some sort of like major democratic convulsion in society. And my point here, by the way, is not to incriminate people who are you know, making a demand to people mm. in the position of politics. I'm talking about what Nicola Sturgeon did. Nicola yeah. Sturgeon said to herself, this will be my equal marriage. Yeah. She, she was looking around for something that... An I opportunity. For an opportunity. It cost her no money. That's a big one. This thing has to cost me no fucking money. It is money. free. It is free. It's free. No one can disagree with it. That's what she would have thought at the time. That's how mm. out of touch she was with, uh, with any kind of wider democratic sphere. No one can disagree with it. It won't really change anything. Everyone will give me a pat on the back and say, aren't you a lovely, you know, progressive, compassionate, cosmopolitan, all the things people were saying about her anyway when she had to fucking flee, right? Um, and I'll walk out and I'll be the next Jacinda and I'll be the next Clinton. I'll be the next Tony Blair, right? Because I, I put a little cap on my time in office of this kind of liberal, progressive giveaway. Had she known that it would have caused the biggest internal ructions in her party in her entire uh, period as first minister, she would never have touched it. She would never have touched it, right? And this, by the way, is what people get wrong about this situation on both sides of the culture war, because you have plenty of people who despise the GRR and the independence movement who say she's hell-bent on it. She did this, right? Nicola Sturgeon doesn't give a fuck Remember what we said about her splatting the independence moves, you know, brains out on a on a on a rock and then pissing on it, right? She is a ruthless player. Aye, go back to her she, fucking comments on Section Twenty Eight. Get on the old uh, way back machine. She was ruthless during Section ruthless. Twenty Eight in in making sure that Conservative Scotland was still on side by making little, you know, little nods and little nods. Yeah, right? she was the one who did that. By the way, more than more, you know, I know. She, she was the the operator in that situation. And see if there were what Nicola Sturgeon didn't understand was Conservative Scotland has since retreated even further than during Section Twenty Eight. She probably didn't see the need to balance um, the GRR with you know a conservative element in society. What she didn't understand is that in the intervening period the liberal tradition, the broad liberal tradition who had supported Section 28 had split internally, right? Yeah. So all of a sudden, she came across this, like, 
opposition that she had no idea was there lurking, right? Do you know what I mean? Like ready to 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 put up an opposition to to this stuff. So that's what happened here. There wasn't some kind of like civil rights movement type struggle between progress and reaction. That entire stage was people, just, people want that narrative though. Everybody wants that fucking story. They're desperate because and part of it is just uh, declining expectations in politics because yeah. if you had a huge labor movement out on the streets winning things for a, a, a social majority, right? Winning increases in buying power and pay and decent pensions and public services, the things that everyone needs. If you had that, you wouldn't have people going around saying, like, um, we need to combat, combine our economic demands with demands for social liberation, right? As though this was still... You know, you know those kind of doctrines of the nineteen thirties, yeah. right? Um, because what what people have come accustomed to in a way is like we're not winning anything on the class front. The class front has collapsed, right? But what we do have is this other stuff, which is also vital, and we've been winning that for decades. The left tells itself it's been winning it for decades. Neoliberalism hijacked much of that agenda decades ago. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, I think people people are desperate for there to be a kind of twilight struggle between social reaction and some kind of ill-defined social liberation that doesn't involve an engagement of like fundamental class questions. And it's and that that battle has taken place, and the liberals have won. Yeah, and it's made the liberals very sad. There's nothing worse than your end time. This has truly been a mega mix corner cast and finished on a classically depressing note yeah there are other outlets available for for hopeful content yeah no no this is this is um um if you if you want to hear about um you know your your much beloved cause being pissed on in a ditch there's only one place you can come for that <laughs> go back to the guardian if you want to hear about yeah. how nicholas sturgeon is kind to old people and children oh sick absolutely sick um Anyway, I'm gonna go back to my my family role, back to the time portal. Good stuff. Um, and we will record again soon. Let's do it. Excellent. See you later. Bye. Bye. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscot. 